lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We do pray that you would speak clearly to us, that you might give us a heart of wisdom. We pray that you might help us to hear your voice. Pray that you might sustain my physical voice, even through this sermon. I pray that any weakness or untruth would fall to the ground, but we would clearly hear your bold and true words, even this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of God's grand promises to his people was one of land. And we speak of the promised land or the land of promise, generally referring to this a bit of land from the west of the Jordan River to the east to the Mediterranean Sea. <clears throat> but what we need to understand is that the promise for land was not necessarily and not in total a promise of a geographical piece of uh, or location, but rather it was a, a promise for a place of rest, a place where God would be with his people, a place of security, safety, peace, and communion with our God. And when uh, the Israelites left the hard slave labor of Egypt, they had this promise of rest uh, ahead of them. But as we know, an entire generation fell in the wilderness on the way to that rest. They never quite saw that rest because they did not believe. But then Joshua, one of the faithful spies, led the next generation of God's people into the promised land. And in part, they received that promise. God was with them. They were able to defeat the enemies of God within the promised land. And yet it wasn't a total and complete fulfillment of that promise. There were some enemies that remained within the land, some of the inhabitants, and God's people continued to be threatened from outside the borders of the land of promise. But if you fast forward a few hundred years, 
after the reign of King David, there was a time of peace for God's people. By God's might, David was able to conquer the enemies of God's people. And when David handed the throne over to his son Solomon, Solomon whose name means peace, making him the prince of peace, the people of God did experience a time of peace. And Solomon even prayed, giving thanks to God for giving rest to his people. And yet it was short-lived. It was temporary. After Solomon died, there was immediately a split in the kingdom between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There was civil war and strife within the kingdom. And eventually the enemies from outside came destroyed the northern kingdom, brought the southern kingdom into exile. The promised rest was never fully realized. And beloved, we, we long for rest. Um, we, we long for a place where the Lord's reign is so clearly manifest that there is no conflict no fear, no sickness. We long for a place where we have productive and edifying work. We long for a place where we have edifying and encouraging relationships. We long for a place where we have true intimacy with our God. And Yet Scripture gives us this picture that in this life, these, these things that we long for will never truly, fully, finally be attainable. Um, the Apostle Peter says that we are elect exiles. We are exiles without a home. Hebrews describes the life of a Christian as one is wandering on our way to our final home. And without a home, without a place that is ours, a place of security and safety, we won't experience that rest. And as Jesus said, in this life, you will face tribulation. But beloved, the good news, the good news, which we heard already in this passage, is that there is such a rest. It does exist and the promise for us to enter that rest still remains. It's still open to us. The Israelites were promised rest. They, they were promised to be brought into this place of rest. And yet they did not believe. And they fell in the wilderness. They never reached that rest. And God said in his wrath, they shall never enter my rest. But beloved, our passage mixes that warning with the glorious hope that that, hope, that rest is available for us. It's, it's available for you and for me. And we, we must not harden our hearts because God's rest remains available to us. And that's what we need to see in this passage is, be, is since God's promise of his rest still stands, we must strive to enter that rest by faith. 
And we'll chart a course through this passage under three simple headings. Um, The first is that God resides in his rest. The second is that God welcomes his people into that rest. And the third is that Christ leads his people into God's rest. So as Elder Bell pointed out, there's, there's an awful lot in this passage about rest it's talking about this rest, and it's important for us to understand what this rest really entails. Um, it's, uh, and from the very beginning, it's, it talks to us about it being God's rest. Verse 1, therefore, while the, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Um, in verse 3, uh, our, and again in 5, the Lord says, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the God's rest. There's a uniqueness to this. But we need to ask, well, what, in what sense is it God's rest? In what sense is it God's rest? Um, and I think verse 3 helps us with this, 3 to 5. It says, for he who have believed, enter that rest... As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works, God's works, were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. God rested from his works. So the rest, that is God's rest, is not so much God saying, this is a rest that I will give you, but this is the rest where God himself resides. If we think back to the creation account, which we just read from, God worked through the six days of creation to create all things. And in the seventh day, God entered into his rest. He entered into that rest. And there's no day after that. It is as though God remains in that rest, in that particular place. But again, what does that, what does that mean? Um, it can't mean, it cannot mean that God ceased activity in that rest. It cannot mean that. God's mighty acts and works continue to this day. Hebrews made clear that uh, God upholds the universe By the word of his power, God works salvation for his people. Uh, Jesus said that my father father is working until until even now. He said that in John chapter 5. So it can't be cessation from activity. Nor can it be a one-day vacation. It can't be a one-day vacation. God did not create... He did not endow his universe with a full self-driving feature. If God were to uh, cease to uphold the universe for even the tiniest split second, the universe would cease to exist. He must actively, and he does actively uphold each part of it. He must actively work salvation. That can't be what it was. It is Creation is completely dependent upon his sustaining power. Rather, what we need to see this rest is, is this is God entering 
and remaining in this rest. It's not an inactivity or retirement, but as one commentator said, and I think this is a great way of explaining it, he says the picture is rather that after having made and ordered and subdued the creation according to his desired plan, his control was so absolute, his sovereignty so unquestioned, that God enthroned himself without effective opposition. His reign is one of rest, that is, of absolute, supreme, and unassailable sovereignty, so much so that he exerts all of his rule from a position of rest. So God's rest is his absolute, unassailable, perfect, sovereign rule over the things that he has made. And beloved, isn't it true that our failure to comprehend or participate in that rest is what makes our lives restless? It's not work in and of itself that makes us, uh, that robs us of our rest. It is the conflict, it is the futility, it is the frustration in the midst of that work that is the problem. I think we are, would be right to understand that Adam's work before the fall was restful work. It was joyful work. But after the fall, our God said, it is this ground will produce thorns. It is by the sweat of your brow that you will work this land. Work became toil rather than active, restful worship. And same thing with families. It's not families or family dynamics or interpersonal relationships in and of themselves that rob us of rest. We were created to be in community with one another. It is not good for man to be alone. But rather, when sin entered the world, I will surely multiply pain in childbearing. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. There will be conflict in even the most intimate of relationships. And that is what robs us from that restful joy. But beloved, our God is not affected by these things. These do not hinder his rest. He does not fret. He is not threatened by any power or authority, or circumstance. He does whatever he so desires and whatever he wills, and he does so with joy and love for his people. He even uses the wickedness of his enemies for his glorious sovereign purposes. He's never in a hurry. He's never fearful that things will not turn out the way that they ought to do. In fact, he ceaselessly works from a restful repose in complete satisfaction of himself and with a gloriously benevolent heart toward his creatures. That is the rest of our God. That's the rest where our God resides even now. It is his place of glory. It is his unshakable kingdom, Hebrews says. And beloved, even though our God has cast sinful mankind out of that rest and into the wilderness, 
our God welcomes us, beckons us into his rest. And that's what we need to see next is that God welcomes his people into his rest. Verse 1 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, it still stands for us to enter his rest. This was a promise that he had promised to Abram that there would be a rest. The Israelites failed to reach that rest because of their unbelief. Joshua did take them and lead them, and they took possession of the promised land. But our writer says that that was not the fullness of the rest that God had in mind. There in verse 8, he says, For as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Joshua led the people into the promised land, and yet the writer of Hebrews is pointing back to this psalm, Psalm 95, which was written years, hundreds of years later, saying if if, if Joshua's rest was the rest, why would God continue to talk about another rest? There's another rest that we need to look forward to that is theirs for ours. And as it says in verse yeah, verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And beloved, that is, that is very exciting news for us. That has to be very exciting news because it says, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So if God's rest is this restful Sovereign repose, free of any conflict, full of peace. He's saying that's what we can expect when we enter that rest. That joy, that peace, that satisfaction, that completion of things being the way that they ought to be. And that is what he's promising for us to enter. And that's really, really good news for us. And so the promise remains, but so does the warning. Because verse 2 says, For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So God welcomes us, and yet Christ must lead us into that rest. We must follow Christ as he leads us into that rest. And it says, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It is through faith that we enter that rest, and specifically faith in Christ Jesus. Beloved, it is not hearing this good news. It is not Hearing even about Jesus that gets us to that rest, it is believing these things. God gave to Israel good news of great joy that he would lead them into God's rest. And they did not believe, but they fell in the wilderness. But it is Jesus who leads us into God's rest. Beloved, it is no accident that the name Jesus 
is the New Testament equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua. For just as Joshua led God's people into the promised land, so our Savior Jesus Christ is our Joshua who delivers us into God's true and promised rest. Joshua was a type or a picture of the rest that the Lord Jesus Christ would give us should we remain in him. Jesus is our hope and our surety of our faith because we can look to Jesus and we can see that he has entered God's rest even now. So when we see Jesus who was faithful, found faithful, ascended into the heavenly realms and now sat down He is now in a position of rest, restful repose with all authority on heaven and earth having been given to him. And that is proof, God's proof to us that he is leading us there. But he is also the entrance, he is the means by which we get to that rest. We must remain in our faith in Jesus Christ. We must come, we are brought into that rest through Jesus Christ. Like Jesus said, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. It is through coming to Christ and him carrying carrying us across that finish line into God's promised rest. That is how we get to that rest. Christ remained faithful, and through his faith, he was able to enter that rest. And he was crowned with glory and honor. And beloved, we enter God's rest by faith. And specifically, it's faith in Christ's faithfulness. It's faith in God's surety that he will bring us through the means that he has ordained, which is his son, Jesus Christ. It is faith that Christ's righteousness was sufficient to bring us into God's rest. It is faith that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to make us fit to enter that, God, that rest And it's faith that God has found Christ faithful and has brought him into that rest. And so we live with the surety of that until we reach that rest. But also, beloved, uh, we have to see that this rest, God is in this rest right now. So that rest exists. And as we participate in Christ. As we have faith in him, we experience that rest now. And there is also a future element that we look ahead to. If you see verse 3, it says, for, he, for we who have believed enter that rest. We enter even now. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The part of God's rest is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we become participants in that kingdom, 
we begin to experience that rest that will be ours totally when he brings us into that eternal rest. So we can and will experience rest even now in this life, but not the fullness because otherwise he wouldn't say, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. It is a partial rest, a glimpse of that rest. We continue and we must persevere so that we can enter that rest for all eternity. There's two key imperative commands that sit at the bookends of this passage, one in verse 1 and one at verse 11. It's important for us to see those commands. The first is there in verse 1. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you shall seem to have failed to reach it. God's promise of rest stands, and yet God is clearly and pointedly telling us we must fear. We run the risk of forfeiting our share in God's rest. As we read from Revelation 14, those who do not have faith will never have rest. And so we must fear. We must have a holy fear. And this is a command. Notice who the command is for. He says, let us fear. Let us fear. This is a communal, a corporate, a community command. We must share together in a holy fear of God's commands. God takes faithlessness seriously. This is not a game for him. God is not playing church. Our God calls his people to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and to walk by faith. And we must fear because he says, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. As we are brought into the family of God, we ought to have a holy zeal for God's word, holy zeal for the safety and the security of one another, a love and a compassion for one another that we should, not one of us, fail to reach God's rest. So, beloved, do you have a holy fear of God's word? Do you recognize how seriously God takes his word? And do you Are you zealous to remain faithful to it, even when it is difficult? And consider, how can you encourage your brothers and sisters in the Lord to remain in the love of Christ and to walk in faithfulness? We must hold one another together by faith, lest any of us should have failed to reach it. So that's the first command, let us fear. The, the second is it there in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Yet again, this is another community command that let us strive to enter that rest. <clears throat> in Army ROTC programs across the country, many of them participate in this 
uh, varsity sport within ROTC called Ranger Challenge. And Ranger Challenge is an optional activity where there are these nine man or nine person teams that compete together against a number of different events, some of them individual events and some of them team events. And the final <coughs> and most grueling event is the Ruck March, the 10K Ruck March. And that might not sound like a whole lot to you, but what that means is 10K or 6.2 miles. This is a race that the team will engage in. Each of the cadets would gear up with their entire uh, combat gear. They would put on their army rucksack or backpack with uh, no less than 45 pounds of weight. And they would as quickly as possible, complete this race up and down, hilly terrain, dusty, gravelly tra trails. But the, the rub about this race is that the team must stay together. There must be no more than 50 feet from the cadet in the front and the cadet in the very back. The team that starts together must finish together regardless of whether any of the cats has fatigue or muscle soreness or blisters or dehydration or any such thing, the team must stay together and pull one another across that finish line, even if they have to slow down to keep together. And beloved, that, that is the church. Our God didn't take the nation of Israel and send them on a race across the wilderness saying, just get to the other side. Let's find our way there. They went together. They camped together. They suffered together. They lived together. And the same thing for the church, beloved. Your God has no intention for you to walk by faith or grow in faith by yourself. We do this together. We have that community responsibility lest anyone would fall by the same sort of disobedience. And that's what he says here is that let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We must strive together to enter that rest. In fact, that's how we fear is by striving. So we should ask how. How can we, how can we strive and I would argue that we strive to enter God's rest by engaging and participating in God's rest even now. And I'll give you three ways that we ought to participate in that rest. The first is we need to rest from our work for salvation. Rest from our work for salvation. We enter that rest, God's rest, only by the person of Jesus Christ. Only by our faith in Christ. Only those who believe in Christ are brought into his rest. And what we believe is that Christ's work satisfied everything that we need in order to gain that rest. His righteousness was perfect for us. His death was perfect for us. His resurrection was perfect for us. We are saved because of his work. We believe that. 
And beloved, we need to rest in that. You need to rest in that. You need to rest in that. You need to reorient your entire life and the foundation of everything you do on the fact that Christ Jesus has accomplished everything for you. Because doing that allows you to rest from your anxious toil that I'm not doing enough. I am not good enough. There's something about me that God would disapprove of that would keep me out of his rest. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ loved you with a powerful and strong love to do everything for you. You need to rest in that. In Christ Jesus, you are righteous and holy, and you can rest in that, both now and forever. So we rest in our work for salvation, but secondly, we can rest from the futility and fears that we have. Rest it from our futility and fears through faithful obedience. In the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which he now reigns, every one of God's promises comes to fruition. Every one of them. In the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, God transforms his people into the likeness of his son. He is transforming you into the likeness of his son so that you can rest from the sinful past that you once had and rest in the faithful obedience of being a child of the living God. In the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, your God draws you near in intimacy so that you would know him, you would experience his love, you would experience the brotherly affection of your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you would have purposeful work, purposeful work, because in Christ Jesus, we no longer pursue work for our sinful, selfish idols, but we work now as though working for the Lord and not for man. And in fact, Scripture says that God has called us and equipped us to do good works which he has prepared for us to do. And so that gives true meaning in the midst of the futility of our circumstance that we might find rest in the things that we do, beloved. So we rest in that faithful obedience. And finally, the third way is that we rest by tasting the eternal rest each week through Lord's Day rest. We can't neglect the fact that the Lord has given us a gift in the Lord's Day. Verse 9 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest. There is an, e <coughs> excuse me, an eternal rest that we are longing for, and yet God has given us a glimpse of that rest even now in the fourth commandment. He has commanded us because he knows our hearts. He knows that we are restless. He knows that we need to be told to do that which is good for us. And he commands us to rest. And beloved, this rest that we have been given is a glimpse, a taste, a means of experiencing 
that rest. Each week, it's a permission to participate in that rest. It's training for us to prepare for the endless rest and endless joy that we will have. And it is not merely a physical rest. It's not. It is a spiritual rest. It is a rest from ordinary work, even a a rest to restful work, work that brings rest to ourselves or to others. It is an opportunity to be with the community of faith that we will spend eternity with. It is a means to remember the hope that we have and to re-energize our weary souls in the midst of this journey to our eternal rest. So, beloved, recognize that this gift of the Lord's day is a gift and a glimpse of that rest. So I, I exhort you to reorient your thinking about the Lord's day away from it is a hindrance in the midst of my schedule, something that keeps me from getting what I need to get done for Monday and see it as a gift to prepare you for glory and for rest, a, a necessary aspect of your Christian life so that you have the strength to make it to the promised land. It is for your spiritual health and refreshment and for God's glory. Our lives are stressed and driven and frenetic and fast-paced, and we cannot afford to rest. If we fail to rest as we ought, we run the risk of forfeiting our opportunity to make it to that rest that we so long for. Beloved, the promise of rest still stands. So let us fear, lest any of us should fail to reach it. The journey is long. We grow weary, our hearts grow cold, we lose interest, but beloved, let us strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter it. Let us strive to enter it together because there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God and in that rest, you will find the fulfillment of your heart's longings. We will find the the fullness of the joy that we are seeking for because in that rest, we will rest in the strong and powerful love of our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have extended to us the hope and the promise of your rest. And we know that apart from your work in sending your son to lead us into that rest, we would have no hope of gaining access. And apart from your spirit, we would have no ears to hear this promise. Oh, Spirit, would you work in us to lead us there? Help us to cling to Christ with all of our being. And thank you for the joy of this hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.